LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Kingsley Dennis, who joins us to discuss his book, The Struggle for Your Mind conscious evolution and the battle to control how we think. Within society there exists a silent war. The battlefield is our everyday lives, our education, our work, our leisure, our emotional and spiritual well-being and our thinking and perceptions. Our very sense of reality is deliberately engineered to work against conscious evolution and preserve social norms. In short, we are all part of a war of consciousness and the opportunity is at hand for us to win. Exploring the biology of consciousness, Kingsley reveals the emerging mechanisms for neurogenetic evolution within the brains of gifted individuals, psychics and visionaries, and the coming increases in solar and magnetic energies that will activate them within all of us. Explaining how we can free up mental and emotional energy to break through the barriers inhibiting conscious evolution, he shows that by taking back our minds and changing the way we think, we can restore our connection with nature and the divine and lead humanity into a new age of harmony and awareness. Hello and welcome Kingsley and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi Greg, it's a pleasure and uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, Kingsley, today we're going to discuss uh, your book, The Struggle for Your Mind, Conscious Evolution and the Battle to Control How We Think. And I think a, a kicking off point for this would be sort of a background point. Our lives and indeed our reality is governed by systems and techniques of control, propaganda, indoctrination and distraction that color and shape our thoughts and beliefs. And to the extent that what we think are our thoughts and beliefs in fact really are not our own, nor are the choices and the actions and the reactions and indeed the outcomes that flow from them. Yes, Greg, um, good opening um, sentence there. Well, you see, my background um, is in sociology, and I I taught for several years sociology at Lancaster University, and looking at the social system from, let's say, the viewpoint of a sociologist, um, you get to see how, um, let's say, certain systems are just built in uh, to the way we live our lives and there are talks on bureaucracy and red tape etc etc but for many years I've had a parallel research personal development looking at consciousness and how our consciousness and social consciousness is formed so I wasn't able to develop this in university but since I've moved away from the restraints of academia my intention has been to look at how society and social systems operate in tandem with consciousness. And 
by doing that, I've had a totally different perspective on how some of these conditioning processes work. So on one hand, um, these systems are set up to socially manage a burgeoning society or populations. And you know, if you say that, then you say, yeah, I can kind of understand why that may be. But then if you start to look underneath it, then you start to understand that, in fact, some of these are more intentional and more deliberate than, than in fact, they're being put out to be. And so if you look at propaganda, which really, um, I mean, the, the great granddaddy of propaganda, Edward Bernays, who um, was the nephew of Sigmund Freud and was extremely well versed in, in, in um, this aspects of, of um, psychological aspects of understanding of how the brain works. And they were, you know, this understanding was put into PR and propaganda. And then if, if you look at how technology merges with that, then it's not an accident at all. Um, the psychology of how mass thinking operates and the way that technology is used in social systems by um, governing, governing authorities, it, it's a very deliberate um, collusion. So by looking at that, the whole ball game just opens up and, and we come into aspects I said of technology, how technology works throughout our lives. And then of, of course, propaganda now is connected with media and what I refer to as militainment, the, the crossover between uh, military uh, thinking and, and the way the media is used. And, and, and everything, Greg. I mean, it's a whole kind of Pandora's box. So where do you want to go from there? Well, um, perhaps we should um, dip into individually some of the areas in our life that you know, most of us come into contact with at some point or other and just look at even superficially how the systems you've just described come into effect. I mean, let's start with, you know, when we're all children, we go to school as the education system. I mean, that's certainly one place where uh, conditioning and certain cultural norms are established for us all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. I, mean, I also want to stress here that what I talk about in the, early, the first half of the book or in this theme we were discussing now is what I refer to as the old mind, old systems, and that we are actually in a transition moving towards new systems and new thinking. So it's not that I feel that this is the end point, I feel this is, just, this is part of the struggle, Greg, is that we have to move away from these systems. But in order to see that we're in prison, we have to see the bars. And so we have to see what are the, the antiquated systems. And education is a part of that because the education systems that are, we, we still have today are a, th are a throwover from the industrial mindset. And so the industrial revolution actually really created the, the blueprint for the educational systems that were um, really based on the old workhouses. And the, the, the initial schooling educational systems were really just set up to give, um, to give people a basic rudimentary um, understanding of, let's say, the three R's, the reading, writing, arithmetic, but just educate people enough to then push them into an industrial workforce, i.e. take people from maybe an uneducated or agrarian background and get them prepared for the factories of the cities. That really was the industrial mindset of the old educational systems. And so 
we haven't changed the curriculum in almost over a century. Of course, the contents change, but the structures haven't. And so what we have today is we're moving into a time of, of collaboration and networking, just as we're speaking now, and we network through social media, through the internet. So you know, we are sharing. But in a classroom with those four oppressive walls, if we use that same model of sharing, we get a slap around the head and it's called cheating. You know, just the fact of trying to communicate with the person next to you is called cheating. So there's that sense of the individual has to work alone. They're in competition with those people around them. And they have to learn by rote to parrot fashion, um, relay back what's given to them. That, that is just an indoctrination program. That's not a creative, innovative uh, educational growth program. I mean, to give an example, Greg, when I was working at the university, I, this is the truth. I had students who came to me and say, can you please tell us what you want us to write? And I would say to them, well, you know, especially this, this my area, sociology, it's open to you to tell me your thinking. And they actually said, well, yes, we understand that. But if we don't give you what we're looking for, then your mark is down. We won't pass. We just want to pass. And that is you know, indicative of the education system is that um, it, it has boxes that you have to tick. And if people don't fit into those boxes or if creative thinking doesn't fit into it, then, you know, the, they may not pass. And the way the education system is today is that it's almost now a, a, a business. And so, you know, the, the students or their families have to pay. And therefore, the families expect a product, which is the student has to pass. And if the student doesn't pass, then the teacher actually has to explain to the department why they're not passing them, because they have to deliver a product at the end of the day. And of course, there's league tables to, to, um, to be able to um, stay at the top of in terms of universities. So it's a whole kind of vicious circle, Greg, and that's just one example of this, this rigid structure, which is delimiting creative thinking and, and, and human vision. And of course, besides the fact that 95% of our thinking and therefore our sort of actions and decisions come from our unconscious mind, uh, you know, which by definition we're not conscious of, for mm -hmm. the first six or seven years of our life is really where the outcomes in our life are shaped. And obviously our parents have a huge effect there but uh, for a lot of kids, that's going to be most of that's going to happen while they're in the school system. And that programming in the first six or seven years, unless you can become conscious of it, aware of it and do something about it, that shapes the rest of your life. True. And when we talk about social conditioning, most of it is almost invisible. in that it's not invisible, it's invisible because it's there working away, but we just don't notice it. And there in psychology, there is what they call perceptual sets, which means that when, when our mind and our perceptions pick up on something and gets entrained into that, it becomes a set that the mind then recognizes. So to give an example, if you're walking down the street and there's hundreds of cars in the street, you don't notice any of them particularly. But if you've been thinking of buying a particular car and thinking of that particular make and model, all of a sudden you start to notice it all around you because your mind's being focused on that particular issue. So that's how conditioning works. And at, at an early age, there's certain particular impacts. One is that 
the family. We have the, the peers, the elders in the family. Then we have the, also the other children that we play around with and go to school with. So if we are living in a certain geographical region, then especially in Britain with um, class systems, etc., that region tends to have a certain often um, thinking patterns that go with it. And maybe the, the children that we play around with come from similar families with similar thinking um, patterns or behavior. Then we go to a school which is full of people from the local area who are thinking similar, perhaps. And at school, if, if a young child starts to think oh, differently from other children, then you are the subject of bullying, perhaps. So there's a lot of pressure to fit in. And then, of course, you're conditioned to what we call obedience to authority. We have a teacher standing up, and that's a figure of authority. And that perceptual set remains throughout our lives. So we come away from school, we have then um, civil servants having that role of teacher. Uh, there may be also um, police, police people, um, people, um, the boss, people in certain civil positions. Then we have religious positions as well, and maybe the priest and, and certain figures. Um, then we have people we look up to in society. So these perceptual sets start to then narrow down um, a young child's um, worldview or perspective on the world into certain categories. And those categories, and especially that obedience to authority, gets maintained throughout our lives until we come to a point where we have what German psychologist Eric Fromm called the fear of freedom. We, we fear um, going against a set of authoritative um, figures or against the norm. We're worried about what our friends or neighbors may say, so we try to keep up with the Joneses. We're afraid of, of sticking out and saying a different, um, a different opinion or worldview because all this has been ingrained. And that's a part of social conditioning. It's part of the social fabric, Greg. I'm not saying that we have to actually break it all down. We do need some social consensus. But what we need to do is to recognize how we're conditioned and then to reflect upon how to have that conditioning we wish to agree with and how much we actually should start thinking for ourselves. And then, of course, we go from uh, school to into the world of work. And that also then brings us into you know, the economic system, credit, debt and what have you, and the world of work and consumer culture. A lot of our behaviours there are very much informed by the sort of the mindset that you've just uh, mentioned. Yeah, and you rightly picked up on the, the credit debt system. We shouldn't really call it a credit system because everyone's in debt. It's a debt system. Um, the whole financial uh, facade is a, is, has been constructed upon the concept of debt because none of the money that we, that is, we say in existence is not. It doesn't exist. You know, we talk about trillions, etc. The way the banks operate by loaning out 90% of their reserves uh, fractional reserve banking. Well, if you loan out 90% um, of more than what you have, then you're loaning out debt. So um, the whole financial system is based on giving, loaning out more than what's available. Therefore, you're giving debt to people. And then people accrue that debt, and then they earn interest on that debt. So they earn more debt upon the debt they have. And it, of course, Nobody can pay it all back at once because that money doesn't exist. So what it is, it's it's a way of tying us into a system that we can't break away from because 
um, we are then, in a sense, controlled by our debts. We have to pay them off before we have, before we even allow social mobility. And so, rightly so, that that comes into our, into our workforce. And so, you know, these things we we kind of take for granted, and we we're lulled into a into a slumber because credit cards, you know, especially since the 80s, were given out like like you know sugar and sweets. That anybody who who had two legs could get a credit card, a mortgage, and and could take on debt, um, because obviously that was bring everybody into a system that functioned according to how the system wished to function. So now uh, we realize, and especially since uh, the the breakdown in late 2008, that this debt system is really a case of the emperor's new clothes, that is completely naked and it doesn't. It doesn't exist, but now we've already invested into it, and because we've invested into it individually, we invest into it by debt or by the the, um, the monetary needs that we have and our lifestyles. Um, that we have to go along with it. On the larger scale, many countries have invested into it um, by buying certain treasury bonds, etc. So they can't afford to point out the naked, the emperor's naked, because they've you know they've invested into the system as well. So. We've been brought into the to, into the network, and that's part of the that's part of where we stand now. So that's why I say, first we need to have a, a, a step back perspective on this before we can work out what we wish to do. Now, the economic system and the nature of money is an entire program in itself. Uh, all I would say is that if people haven't already done so, just ask yourself where money comes from. Just go and look. And if you don't already know, you will be horrified. But you'll, you know, also you'll also be liberated mm-hmm. in, in your thinking and uh, in some of your actions. But um, I'm not entirely sure because I try not to pay um, any attention to government whatsoever. But I think last time I looked in the UK, there was actually a government department for culture, media, and sport, and that's quite Orwellian, really, because there's th- three areas there put together: uh, our popular culture. Um, you know, what comes at us through TV, radio, magazines, all the rest of it, media, you know, the news outlets, and indeed sport, the function that that serves. Uh, We only have to think of parallels with previous civilizations like the Roman Empire. Culture, media, and sport are three more kind of arms of control, really, when you you analyze them. They are, rightly said. In your background in legalized freedom and your work that you do, Greg, you're probably more aware as well on these issues. Um, sport, culture, definitely so. I mean, there was um, a case where the government actually, in terms of culture, as you know, have been asking institutions to keep a track of their, almost kind of, you know, keep a track of, of what's going on and, and to spy on others. In, in terms of education, teachers were told to report um, children that they thought had unsocial or, in brackets, uh, terroristic impulses. I mean, this, this, this goes back to almost uh, East Germany and the Stasi, when everyone became a spy on their neighbors and you didn't know who you were talking to. Um, you know, when I was uh, in the Czech Republic uh, many, many years ago, just after the, um, the, the revolution, and a local Czech person told me a joke. They said that, um, you're on a tram, and a person comes up to you and says, well, if, uh, if you won the lottery, let's say... Um, $5,000, what would you do? And the person said, well, I, I just you know, I just live my life as, as I am now. I wouldn't change anything. And the person said, well, what if you won 20000 
in the first required world. You know, I still live the way I am. I'm happy. I'm contented. I wouldn't change anything. What about 20,000? And this went on to like 100,000. And eventually the person said, well, after all this money, are you sure you wouldn't change anything? Why is that? And the person replied, well, uh, but I don't know who you are, do I? You know, so that sense of I'm not giving away any information. Everything's, everything's good, thank you. Um, so there is this, we have to be careful of this. And, and a, a true story, I'll tell you a true story, Greg. Um, without giving away too many details, but I was speaking to someone who worked for an insurance company that was insuring the largest um, football government body in the world, which we know what that is. And this person related how they were being told by someone in their department that they were speaking with the person responsible for insurance of this worldwide football body. And the football body turned to the insurance person and said, do you actually know what we insure, what your insurance for? And the insurer said, well, um, you know, we insured that we insure you because of football, the image, we're insuring you for your media activities. The person said, no, that's not true. Not really. So the insurer said, well, we insure you for liabilities, um, for your members. And the, insurance, the football associate said, well, um, that may be true, but it's not the real reason are you insuring us? Do you know what we do? And the person said, well, you, you know, you're football. And the, the, the football person said, well, yes, we're football, but we're something more than that. Do you know what it's really about? And the insurer said, well, tell me. And the football associate said, what it's all about is nationalism. And that's a true story, Greg. Well, that's very telling, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and nationalism is what you can't get much bigger in terms of social conditioning than that. There's a chapter in the book uh, entitled The Modernity Project, and in terms of where a lot of this is coming from and a lot of this, the systems of control and manipulation are going, perhaps you could say something about what that actually is. It seems to be about what, uh, another phrase you use in the chapter is the rise of technical consciousness. Yes, and, and technique as well. Um, I refer a lot to the French sociologist Jacques Ellul, who wrote both some very telling books in around the 60s. He wrote a book called The Technological Society and, and around a similar time a book called Propaganda. So again, I, you know, I refer to that quite a bit in that because we're living in technological societies, especially so in the last few decades or since the post-war um, time, that we are living almost in techno-cultures. Now, Technology doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. I do support technologies such as the way um, we're using it in distributed models. But obviously, technology in the hands of top-down authoritative systems can be a very controlling apparatus. And we have to, do, again, just look back at how Aldous Huxley talked about this in, in Brave New World. And so technology can also um, have a function creep of the technological consciousness that, again, we are tied into these technical systems, which are really are, are, is an extended form of bureaucracy. And so, um, you know, if, if governing structures have the use of technology to socially manage, then they will use it. That's the, that's the um, I suppose, the consciousness of the modernity or modern project that I talk about. And so, this idea of technique or technical consciousness 
is, is how um, on one side, those that wish to use technology try to uh, creep it into our very social structures. Um, so we have that today in terms of how we have this insipid surveillance program. Uh, again, because of um, the latest whistleblower in America, uh, Snowden, we realize how the NSA, National Security Agency, has been so involved in this. But it goes back a lot further. It goes back to uh, the 1950s when we had the first uh, uh, UK-USA UK, agreement between the UK and America, which created the Echelon program of, of um, global surveillance at such an early stage. Um, then, you know, going back into um, how the CIA heavily funded the communication studies program in terms of how to look into how communication techniques and technologies could benefit the CIA. And they were funding university, university courses on social communications. So that's, you know, the soft, the soft part is the content, how we communicate, etc. But the technique, the technical consciousness is looking at the hardware and seeing how that hardware can be utilized to create a kind of pervasive um, monolithic model. And that technical consciousness has then been pushed over or rather um, placed over very deliberately onto many global systems. Now, we touched upon the financial system, but also in such systems as the global food systems. The way that they're centralized and very, um, very closely managed is a product of this technical consciousness and thinking of how to use technical structures to manipulate the, the software and the content. Right? The internet, obviously, it's hard to imagine the world without it, even though it's relatively recent. Um, it just facilitates so many things now, good and bad. And it's interesting that I remember back in the 80s reading a novel by Arthur C. Clarke, and it was called The Fountains of Paradise. And it was just a little aside in the book, but it basically seemed to describe what we would now understand as the internet. So I remember thinking it was always inevitable. I remember uh, doing computer science at school and we had a, like a network of computers in the classroom and they were all linked together. And then after a few months, there was a network throughout the school, so computers in one room could speak to computers in another. And obviously, the idea of the internet was already established at that time by the, you know, the US military. But the idea of this global network has always somehow seemed inevitable. And yet it's been, as I was saying, a double-edged sword because we hear a, not, a lot now about you know censoring the internet, about controlling the internet, surveilling the internet. And yet it's facilitating so many good things that are actually a problem for governments and those who would control information. And we obviously we're hearing a lot on the minute about this chap Snowden, the whistleblower in America, and that against a background of um, you know WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, Bradley Manning. So there are those who see the internet and actually avoid the internet as being part of you know a global control system. Many more who actually see it as a liberating thing and it's just such a fascinating area to look at at the minute just where things are going to go i mean that's so true the the, the argument's still out and um, my take on that is i understand both sides and i what i feel is happening is that this is not an either or situation it's not black or white um, so I don't subscribe to just one camp only what i sense we're going through is a time of, of contestation 
which is again inevitable, that you know it is both sides vying for the model of how the internet will go and how this is going to work. Now you rightly said that this the idea of connecting up and networking it seemed inevitable because you know it's it's an organic process. It's the way biology works, the way they our bacteria networks. So it is a natural process, but it's trying to be constrained into a control process. So yes, there is um, a, a, a very dark insidious side to um, these global communications and the internet. There's no point denying that. Uh, I, I don't think we should turn away from that. Um, the surveillance is endemic. And the surveillance is, the technologies that are used are really quite incredible. They're so incredible that they're not in the public domain. Um, I think I would feel that whatever technologies the NSA are using are several years ahead of um, what's publicly known. So that, and they do use now a form of, a form of pattern recognition, which means that uh, they don't just link information. They have very incredibly sophisticated software that, that looks for patterns between all types of behavior and all types of movement. Um, so, and on all that information that we place on the web, we should be aware that it potentially could be looked at. But at the same time, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much information out there, it can't all be collected. It's just, it's perhaps just collected it in databases and just not looked at. It's only if something actually, you know, sends out a ping that it gets looked at. But at the same time, the, these global communications are necessary to where I feel that we need to go as a civil society. Now, we've seen it, the Arab Spring, the revolutions uh, in, in over the Middle East and, and now obviously happening in other parts of the world, in Turkey and Brazil, they're obviously rising up now. These communications are really quite crucial. And I do feel that these, the way that we will need the internet, it's not a case of just crashing it and turning away from it. It will be our lifeblood. But this is what I talk about in the transition from the old mind to the new mind. When the old mind uses these communications, they use them for control and, and, and the nefarious uses. But as we're going to see more and more, um, especially younger people coming in who are much more tech savvy and, and knowing how to get around these um, surveillances and also more whistleblowers coming out because you know of being so disgusted with the governmental use of this, we're going to see, I think, uh, a different energy coming into the internet and the uses. But at the moment, it's a battle. It's a contestation for the use. So we shouldn't go either or. We should recognize both are available. But for me, I put my energies into the into the positive side. And obviously, I feel in the years to come, maybe, maybe a decade from now, it won't be overnight. I do feel that the use of the internet will win out by uh, the younger people learning to uh, get around um, top-down um, constrictions, Greg. Yes, I mean, I agree that there there does seem to be, um, I sometimes look at, uh, you know, quote-unquote, the youth and find myself concerned about the future, but there certainly seems to be a burgeoning consciousness that is different, that young younger people, some of them seem to be sort of wired differently almost. Now, I saw a film that I'd recommend to anyone called Pirate Bay Away from Keyboard. And this basically charted the the story, the rise and fall, if you will, of the young guys, Swedish guys behind the website Pirate Bay. Now, the names kind of tells you everything you need to know. If you haven't heard of Pirate Bay, it's basically like a Napster type idea, you know, file sharing 
um, quote unquote illegal file sharing. And the most none of these characters in this film were actually particularly likable. Um, they were quite dysfunctional, actually, the you know, young guys in their early 20s. But the thing that really I took away from the film was how they just thought differently. They just saw the world differently. And their consciousness was one where information is instantly and globally available to everyone at all times, including creative stuff, things that you and I would think of. Uh, you know, you're, you, you've written books. You would like to get paid for those. Thank you very much. But their idea was it was a world beyond copyright and ownership of information. And their mindset is very much that there's all information instantly globally available to everybody. Everybody benefits. I think you're spot on there, Greg. And that, that's something which I've been also looking at recently is that it seems that the younger generations are rewired differently. And so they're coming into the world and they're looking at us and saying, why do you want to copyright it? Why do you want to own it? This is the global commons. So, you know, there is this push going back into, going back to the global commons, which was, again, a very ancient um, understanding. It was an ancient, much older way of being before the landowners put their hedges up and closed off the commons. So we're going now towards a global commons. And, you know, young people are automatically growing up in a world which they're reaching out to people all over, all over the globe. Um, they're having multiple friendships. And they just understand that, they're having a more, uh, let's say, planetary consciousness, not this restricted, um, individualistic, competitive consciousness. They're talking about collaboration, not competition. So they're looking askew at us, at us oldies, thinking, why, why, what are you doing? Why do you want to try and call, control everything? So it's not just that um, it's not just that they want to rebel or revolt against the system. It's not that just. Um, it's just, it's more of a case of they want to do it the way they see it and they just want to get on with it. So I think at the moment we're going through that, I say, contestation revolt stage where people are trying to bang their heads against a system to bring in what they feel is right. There's a sense of injustice. But I feel it's going to, it's going to gradually develop into um, just people creating the alternative models and getting on with it. I often quote the great visionary Buckminster Fuller, and who said, and I paraphrase, he said something like, if you want to create new models, you don't go against the models already in, in existence, you create new models that make the old models obsolete. So I think we move into a time where instead of we're banging our heads against the old system, the younger generation especially are just going to be getting on and creating the new models that will just make the old models obsolete. And I feel we're going to see that coming up more and more over time. And so, yes, they, they just seem to be hardwired thinking differently. And, and that, I feel, is, is a good thing. Yeah, it's interesting looking at, um, I'm generalizing now, because obviously people of all ages are involved in, you know, the systems of command and control, old hierarchical ways of doing things. But uh, you look at people like Snowden, Assange, Manning, how relatively young they are. And if we think of the of the the old systems they're summed up by people like henry kissinger these sort of tired old people who you know it's basically cold war thinking and doesn't really evolve much beyond that yeah exactly it's again you can sense have a feeling that it's inevitable that when we get a younger generation coming up and replacing the old guard in terms of um, politics 
in terms of uh, businesses and when we get young minds stepping into the shoes of a CEO, when we get young people, I mean, young people now can, uh, often stepping into uh, entrepreneurship and, and creating these technological startups from almost nothing. When you get the, the young guard taking over the role of the old guard, then I think we're going to see uh, quite significant change. At the moment, it's, it's more of a case of the old guard, the old tired people, the old Kissingers just hanging on for dear life, you know, in, on, their, on their chair and their seat and their throne and not wishing to give it up. Um, but they have to give it up because they can't live forever. Um, like, I think, the old physicist, I'm not sure if it was uh, Wolfgang Pauli said that, um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have to worry about his ideas being rejected by his contemporaries because you have to wait for the old guard to die out before new ideas get accepted by the young people. And I think that's the case that's going to happen now. Now, in the book, we talk about you know, the fact that there's biological evolution, which is ongoing. Um, whatever you, you know, don't have to subscribe to Darwinian theories there, there, does, there is evidence for it. We have cultural evolution, as we've discussed. But something that you mentioned, um, which is crucial, which is neurogenetic evolution. And this is concerned with the brain, the evolution of the brain and the nervous system. And this is concerned with a rise of essentially empathy. And there have been whole books written about this. And the, the idea of a sort of human version of the internet, that is to say the evolution of a global brain. And I've had uh, uh, Peter Russell on here, who's actually written a book called The Global Brain. And I know you referenced that in your book. Mm -hmm. And all of this rise of empathy, this global consciousness, this shift that's happening, this is the backdrop to what we're discussing, the command and control system. It's a backdrop to what is essentially a war on consciousness. Yes, Greg, and I think that point is crucial uh, because if we felt that we didn't have um, something happening and that we may be having to be stuck in the old systems, the, the, the vista, the horizon wouldn't look so good. So why would I be still positive? Um, so what I do sense is that there is an inevitable unfoldment that's happening. And part of that is what we could see as an evolutionary trend or pattern in that we don't just have biological evolution which is a very slow process whether it's Darwinian or not that's another matter but there is some biological unfoldment that happens then we have a cultural evolution which is really about how ideas are passed on from one culture to the next whether through literature or other iconic elements or through what we call nowadays memes but now there's also a very there's an interior evolution that's happening and so you rightly refer to um, Peter Russell, who was quite visionary. I think about 82, he published the first global brain, which was, for my mind, spot on. When we have minds linking up, um, we have the phenomenon that neuroscientists have called uh, mirror neurons, which is that the when, when we see or watch or hear another person do, involved in some act or whatever, the, the same neurons fire in our brain that would be fine in another person. For example, if another person is, is eating an apple or crying, the same neurons in our heads that would be involved in that process would start to fire even though we're not involved in that process. It's a kind of mimicry, and that's why it's called mirror neurons, which is why, for example, we may cry when we go to the cinema or cry when we are sympathizing with somebody because we are we are neur neuronally involved in that. 
And so that's the, that I think is involved in the rise of the empathic mind. Because we're connected with people globally, we are starting to rewire our brains because we empathize with them, we resonate with them. But also on a, on a genetic level, we, uh, the work of Bruce Lipton has um, shown this. That we, we have an epigenet, epigenetic phenomenon, which means that genes just don't mutate over generations. They can mutate intrageneration, within a generation. And also biophysics shows that our, our DNA is in fact uh, liquid crystal, which emits biophotons, emits light. And in fact, those each, each DNA gives off a magnetic field as well, which links our body into a whole complete electromagnetic field. So our body resonates with the electromagnetic fields of the environment, of the Earth, of, of greater terrestrial solar magnetic fields. So we respond to these impulses. So if there's a change in consciousness, if there's a, if there's a change in perspective occurring across the world, in fact, that has a knock-on effect. It's, again, we can refer to Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenetic um, field hypothesis, that once you have an idea or a trait entering uh, this field, it gets picked up by more and more people. Again, we can refer to the, the hundred monkey syndrome. So, Greg, we can refer to so much science and so much other elements that reinforce this idea that we are actually, um, we connect collectively. And so we can actually take those influences and they affect us on a genetic level. They may even affect us on a, on a frequency level. And they are obviously do affect us on a consciousness level. So we can change much quicker through intentional behavior, intentional change, and connecting together and passing on this information, which is why such, such work as you're doing and other uh, internet uh, stations and just passing on the information is so crucial because that's the horizontal level of where information can be passed between people and that and people can be catalyzed. And that's where the work has to be done. And in a sense, I think I felt with, with the Arab Spring and other social uprising, a lot of governments didn't see it coming that fast because the horizontal level is exponential. The old models are linear. And when you have change operating on an exponential level, it really is going to happen so quickly and can blow the old models away. And that's where my focus is, putting out information and, and trying to catalyze on a horizontal level and connecting with And that's why I feel your work's important also. Now you mentioned uh, Bruce Lipton there, and uh, I've also had, uh, I've also interviewed him here. And his work, he's one of the leading scientists, researchers, looking at how our thinking affects reality. Now, if we consider what we've been talking about earlier on, how we're bombarded with information of all kinds, day and night, um, beyond information, even, you know, the, the propaganda, the negative stuff, effectively, uh, whether it's just trying to get us to buy something or whether it's trying to fundamentally alter our view of, of you know, reality and events, that affects our state of mind. And our state of mind really is crucial because it not only affects our bodies, you know, how well we are, it affects our external reality. So true, and I'm glad you mentioned well, you mentioned Bruce Lipton, Peter Russell. Um, we're in good company there, Greg. Um, and these people have explained so well what's happening. So I can only add to, to what their research has done. Now, in, now fear uh, is a very strong controlling mechanism. 
uh, it's a disempowering mechanism, which is why I talk about being in, in um, states of insecurity. But states of insecurity, I think, I feel, are, have been deliberately constructed and manipulated. So we are in a state of what I call almost permanent warfare because we are, you know, we feel that we, we can fear anything happening to us, whether it's a crash or whether it's so-called homegrown terrorism. All these memes are running through cultures that do affect us. Um, there's been a lot of studies on, on muscle response. And so uh, this is a well-known technique in, in leadership uh, seminars as well. If you ask a person to open up their arms and then you you tell them to think of negative thoughts and something, and then tell them to try to stop you from pushing their arm down. They can't stop you because their muscle, their muscle kind of reaction is weakened by thinking negative thoughts. And then on the contrary, you ask them to think positive thoughts and positive intentions, and then you try and push out, push down their, their outheld arm. And you can't do it because there's a force there holding you back. Um, so. That's also been looked at by the research of David Hawkins in terms of the muscle response. So our bodies, on a physiological level, also respond to fear and negativity. So imagine how our minds also respond to that, because fear is a frequency as well. Negative thoughts are frequencies that can debilitate us. So it's, it's very it's crucial that we don't allow negative thinking or insecurity or, or fear and into our worldviews, into our thinking, into into our daily practices. We have to we have to really um, break away from that. That's imperative because societies are more and more imbuing these memes of negativity. And I, I only I only look at them as being social management and, and conditioning. And so that's why I talk about it's a struggle, it's a battle to control how we think, because how we think and the frequencies of, of our thinking and the, the, the content of our thoughts are crucial because even maintaining a level of positivity can actually bring up an organic natural barrier that doesn't allow negative thinking to enter. It's as simple as that. It's not esoteric, Greg. It, it's, it's just the way it is. It's interesting that you're mentioning about that muscle reaction because through Bruce Lipton, I heard of a technique called Psy-K. I don't know if you've heard of that, but basically it was a similar thing along the lines where people were either able or unable to, to control their own muscle reactions depending on the proposition that was being put to them, whether they believed it was true or not. So if they subconsciously thought that a proposition was true, they were able to you know, keep their arm up and they were not if something they subconsciously thought you know, was not true. So even if they said, oh no, I believe that's true, if they really didn't subconsciously believe it, they would not be able to keep their arms up. So it's mm. a, a similar similar thing. In terms of fear, I mean, that's really the watchword. If somebody said to me, could you, could you sum up you know, society today with one word? For me, that would be it, fear. Because we, you know, most people are scared of their own shadows. We're encouraged to live in fear. Fear is in everything, even the most mundane things, you know, like you know, food and water, you know, is the water supply good for us? You know, is it, is it got contaminants in it, aluminium? Is the food supply sound right through to um, global concerns about, you know, the climate? Terrorism is everywhere. And our response to this is basically characterized by what's known as fight or flight. And when we're in that mode, we cannot, I mean, that really does affect our bodies. And, we, you know, we cannot heal, we cannot grow. It's very bad for our mental and physical health. 
Yes, that's why I refer to these as constructions of fear because they are artificial. We had we had a typical media display of fear around 2012 and the end of 2012, and I refer to that as the Armageddon meme. This, this that the media and especially in the West jumped onto this bandwagon of hailing the end of the world in 2012 uh, and really misconstrued the original message about this cyclical change and it put a lot of people into fear and you know and I, I got people messaging me and saying, you know I feel really worried about this end of the year what can I do what, what's your advice and what are you doing and I said well 21st of December 2012 I'll be with my family um, you know, having a nice laugh, uh, maybe having a drink and having a laugh and being with loved ones and relaxing, I, and I recommend you do the same and stop thinking about the end of the world. And so that was heavily uh, pushed. Fear is is a distraction. And I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek refer to our dating system, AD, and a domini, as, as attention distracting. We're now living in 2013, attention distracting. And that's why what I, what I try and stress is the first thing we should do is just create a kind of distance in order to see things, in order to see our, ourselves. Step back and try to observe what's going on in the world, how we're responding to that, what is coming in as fear, and make a choice before we even make an automatic response. Don't respond to any, everything automatically. Say, what is this? Am I going to accept it? Is it do I do I believe or understand this? What's my response? And if it's something that doesn't sit well, doesn't sit truthful, and as you refer to the, the muscle response, our bodies, our our subconscious or, or inner self or higher self, whatever you want to call it, there's an innate inner ability within each of us to uh, fundamentally recognize when something's right and something's true. And our body responds to that. And we should listen to that and try to also um, create that listening voice within us so we can respond on a conscious level, not just for our bodies. And so we should really um, develop ourselves to respond or not to fear. Uh, and so that, that really, I think, is crucial because, as you say, it's we're bombarded by th these constructions and these memes um, which are debilitating, and that's our responsibility. At the end of the day, we may not be able to blame the exterior uh, impacts for our state of being or well-being if we haven't learned or taken responsibility to respond to that um, as individuals. It's about trusting our instincts in many ways, isn't it? We're sort of from you know year zero basically encouraged not to do that, to defer to authority figures, but. We all have that innate guidance system within us. We can sense the untruth in things if we really do trust our senses. And it's almost you talked about, you know, the scientific way of doing things, command and control, that everything should be rationalized and that, you know, we shouldn't listen to our heart or even our gut. But we all have the ability to di for discernment here. And I think that's one of the, it's almost like that scene in the film V for Vendetta when there's yet another propaganda broadcast and there's a family sitting at home watching it. Just And one of them says, does anybody believe this crap anymore? And that's what we're seeing, I think, in our in the system in the real world is more and more people are, and the media won't report it like this, and more and more people are turning off because even if it's not a, a sort of a really conscious understanding for them yet, 
instinctively they feel the untruth in so much of what is being pushed on them. Mm, yeah, I totally agree. And you know, I always refer to the old um, funny man himself, Timothy Leary, who in the 60s, he actually said, everybody has an inherent bullshit detector inside of them and they should use it. Um, so what I do feel is there is a, there's something in the air, to put it vaguely, and what that is, is there's an unfolding conscious awareness that's happening across the globe that is basically, as I said earlier, it's showing the emperor for what he is, naked. And and so people are, are looking at the news they're receiving now and thinking, that, that's just rubbish. You know, I, I don't agree with that at all. I don't believe it. And that's been happening only relatively recently. I feel that even in the last five years, Greg, there's been a huge change in that. I've been noticing the people I speak with in terms of what I talk about and my ideas, that even in the last few years, people are responding differently. Whereas before, they may want to debate it and say, or say, I don't understand that. Tell me what, what it is you want to say. Now they're saying a lot quicker, yeah, I get it. You know, I see it. This, this is just not the way it is. There's almost a certain transparency now creeping in within um, our awareness and, and our instincts. I think that instincts and our good reactions are reacting on a different level now. And that means it's going to be a lot harder for the authoritative um, systems and the powers that be to maintain this facade. Because the reason why I think we've got so much disruption recently is, is because they're trying to up the game um, to maintain their stranglehold. Because they're realizing that they're losing the grip. And it's going to come to a point where it's, it's just not possible anymore to put out this rubbish and to put out these untruths because people just won't accept them. Maybe there'll be some of the of the older generation that are really ingrained who perhaps can't see it or don't wish to see it. But when you're dealing with a lot of young people rising up, a lot of young people so well connected with technology and sharing this information, you know, the, the old structures are just not going to be able to get away with it anymore. And that, that day is coming, and it's coming quickly. Yeah, and I think it's it's very telling that that trio that I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, Snowden, Assange, Manning, in some ways, certainly they risked giving up their lives for what they did. They just, they, they, they knew this. They consciously said, I know I could die. This could be the end of it, but they, they, they go ahead anyway. I think that's really indicative of what we're discussing. And there is decline everywhere. There's no doubt, you know, and it's easy to become despondent about that. But part of it is necessary, you know, even on a superficial level in terms of, um, you know, sort of climate and energy and what have you, we do have to change the way we're doing things. But a lot of it is about, is operating at a deeper level about slewing off old ways of doing things. And in terms of you know, the human race, it's easy to, again, look out there and perhaps become a bit despondent. But it depends where you look. And I think the bottom line is that, and you reference this in your book, that we really are a work in progress here. This is not the end. You know, it's very tempting to, you know, buy into that sort of end of history crap and think that we've basically arrived for all the problems there are in our society globally, that this is, you know, we're sort of the peak of humanity. It is not. We are works in progress. And that that is, for me, the main point is one hand we talk about what's breaking down and what isn't working to to actually direct people's attention to that so they're aware of it but on the other hand is to say well but look what's coming the reason why we've got breakdown is because the energies of the new are coming in causing that disruption 
Um, it's like you have two wave interference. You know, use a metaphor of physics or, or anything. You know, you you know you throw two. To keep it simple, Greg. Throw two stones into a pond. The ripples that go out from those two stones, when they meet, they interfere each other. That's what's happening now. I feel that the new systems and new thinking are coming in, and what's happening is that they, that interference is really destabilizing the old systems. But that's a good thing because it means something's coming. Um, so we, you know, it's, it's, I, I do feel it's important that people's attention are directed towards the, the positivity, so they're not left in this prison of, of fear and insecurity, because that is the old obedience to authority, fear of freedom model. What's coming is a real change in the system. New models are coming. And you mentioned the, the, the whistleblowers. They are really catalysts, and they deserve great credit. Um, for, for what they're doing is catalyzing people to be aware of it. And so then every, every one person who's aware can catalyze countless others. Because through the people they meet, through the networks, online social networks, you know, that's, that, that is what exponential means. One person can catalyze so many others. And there is a turning, a turning understanding now, a turning consciousness. And so this won't happen overnight. We're not going to wake up to a new society tomorrow or next week. It does take years, and, and perhaps we have to go into decades to see the final shift over. But you know, in terms of the bigger picture, in terms of um, looking at social history, the, the, the rise and fall of civilizations has generally taken sometimes centuries, at least many, many decades. It wasn't just overnight. What's happening now is, in our modern societies, that change is much more rapid. We're seeing change in happenings in months and, and, and in just a year or two. I think we're going to see something radically different. So we do have to engage with what's coming in order to step into a different perspective and different perception. And once we have a different perception and different perspective, um, for me, it's almost as if there's a different vibration, a different energy signature. Once I think differently, then I attract different circumstances, and I don't see the old picture for what they are. When I see these riots that are happening now in, in Istanbul and throughout Turkey and throughout Brazil, I don't see them as problems. I see them as really gateways to change, and that, that is, um, that is, I think, is a mindset that we should embrace. One of the perspectives that is useful to sort of come at this from is the understanding that's coming to us from quantum physics or quantum mechanics, even though it's 100 years old, I think it's really only, it's becoming particularly relevant at this time. And some people might say, well, you know, I'm not interested in physics, didn't do it at school. Why should I look at that? But I would encourage everyone to look at, uh, you know, if you're not scientifically minded, to look at popular books on what was called the new science, because that's really revealing perspectives that are very telling and very useful for us, I think, going forward. And it's really highlighting that the idea of separateness in things is an illusion and I think this is more than just interesting science I think when you start to look at that area you really your fundamental worldview can change and you really do look at everything yourself you know the other people you interact with everything that happens in this world everything that has ever happened you just look at it differently and that's a good point and in fact that's what I'm looking at recently in the work I've been doing on, on the Akashic and the Akashic field I mean, I, again, I would, I would support what you said. When I first started looking into physics, I also went out and bought something like the, the 101 Guide to Quantum Physics just to start a basic understanding and take it from there. Because when you look at what quantum physics is saying, 
then you realize that it's it's echoing a lot of the old wisdom traditions, a lot of the old shamanic knowledge of, of being an interconnected society. Refer to the again the old Hindus uh, Vedic Indra's net metaphor of, of we're all connected with this vibrant net, and so we are inherently uh, a sea of interconnectivity, and this separateness is really an external secondary manifestation. And I do feel that we're also moving towards uh, a time and era whereby our latest in scientific discoveries will validate a lot of ancient wisdom and maybe what we call spiritual uh, understanding. And these will converge. So we won't have this duality of what science says and what we instinctively feel or what some wisdom traditions are saying. They'll validate each other and that will help to unify us and unify our consciousness and our understanding that we are a planetary species and a planetary, um, not only brotherhood, sisterhood, but humanhood. We are together. And so this idea of you know, warfare with our neighbors, it just it doesn't have resonance anymore. And we're seeing some wonderful early signs of that because the social conditioning and the media says that, for example, people in Israel and Iran, they're enemies, and we should fight each other until the end of days. That's the old condition. Recently, you had, um, I forget the name of this young man from Israel, he stood up and he, he wrote a card saying, um, we love you, Palestine. And then later it became, we love you, Iran. And there's a great um, network of people saying, reaching out and embracing their their fellow, their fellow brothers and sisters across the world and saying, we don't want war, we don't want division, you know, don't listen to what our governments are saying, we're the generation where we want peace. And that is significant. And I think, you know, people all over the world are now standing up and saying that, and that's wonderful to see. Now, another scientific perspective that we can, uh, we'll just touch upon this briefly, but that we can look at world events and, you know, where humanity has come from, where we're going is through biology actually and our DNA because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that again is not a fixed and settled thing that that is also a work in progress and we, we, we start looking at the biology of DNA you get into junk DNA most people will have heard of that in the popular um, science media and junk DNA is a bit like uh, mirrors the idea of dark matter and dark energy in the universe that is to say most of what we look at whether it's in our own makeup or you know of the cosmos, we don't actually know what it is or what it's for, and that's very significant. Basically, because there's a lot for left to learn, and we, if you look into the history of it, you can see how um, solar activity and electromagnetism has a, a great deal of effect um, on the Earth in the past. Some say has been responsible for great cataclysms in the past, but it also has an evolutionary role to play. And we're going into a time, again, big area, we could talk about this all afternoon, but we're going into a time of increased solar activity and where electromagnetism of the Earth may also have a role to play. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I'm glad you picked that up, Greg. Um, you call yourself legalized freedom, but it's good to see you touch on so many varied topics. Um, in the end, it's all about freedom. Um, yeah, I, I've been looking at this subject as well, and I do feel it's quite central. Um, I mentioned earlier briefly that latest in biophysics have, have um, discovered that DNA, in fact, is a liquid crystal that resonates with, gives off biophotons, which are photons of light, and, and resonates in a, a sort of magnetic field, which connects up with all the other 
particles of DNA. So we are our whole body is a is a coherent resonating field. Um, so the three percent of DNA which is used for protein building that's just a minuscule amount. Um, you rightly say if we have ninety seven percent of DNA which the scientists haven't figured out the use of it for. If something like 98% of all matter in the universe is dark matter, and then we have dark energy, we realize that, in fact, we know basically next to nothing. If, if all we know can amount to 2%, then um, you know, what, are, what are we shouting about? So we realize that we, in fact, know really next to nothing about what's going on. In terms of DNA, I do sense that a lot of it is involved in um, fields of energy information. And this goes on, on a terrestrial scale, a solar scale, and much larger. So if each human being is a coherent electromagnetic field, which, of course, I mentioned is connected with the biofilters of the DNA, then our environment is awash with so many electromagnetic fields. And one of the great influences is the influence that we, we receive from the sun. Now, the sun gives off huge amount of electromagnetic energy, in terms of its uh, solar flares and, and, and plasma radiation, which we receive on the Earth. Now, there's been some very good research to say that uh, evolution on the Earth is actually um, is connected to solar cycles. Now, this is not pseudoscience, as some as some climatologists may may defer to. A lot of a lot of well reputable scientists are now going along with the notion that the we are part of solar evolution, that the, soul, the sun plays a great part in, in evolution on the planet Earth. And I do feel also plays a part in uh, human evolution. So if we are, if our DNA responds to electromagnetic fields and therefore electromagnetic fluctuations, of course we have to ask ourselves if the Earth is receiving some dramatic changes in electromagnetic flux, then how does that impact our DNA and therefore uh, our cells and our growth? And so I do feel that there's a great line of questioning and a lot more to be unearthed about the human DNA, therefore human conscious evolution in connection with uh, solar evolution in the state of our sun. And of course, if we are electromagnetic fields, then what, what undergoes change in one then connects and we are connected to field undergoes in the other. And so this 97% unknown of DNA, I sense, is connected more to a kind of frequency resonance. And the more that we understand frequencies and how frequencies are involved in evolution, also frequencies in terms of our health, our well-being, frequencies in terms of our consciousness patterns, the more we understand that, the more we'll be closer to understanding where we're going and where we need to be. And of course, the tensions and conflicts that we've been talking about and the, the sort of evolution and the, the shift in perception that's been the basis for this discussion, that's also, you know, we've just been talking about physics and biology, that's also taking place within science. We're seeing great progress being made on some very interesting fronts, you know, really cutting edge, it's redefining our understanding of reality, but we also have the rise of what we see as scientism, basically, you know, the, the, the church of conventional science that that writes off a lot of um, new ideas or new thinking as as you just mentioned as pseudoscience so that's another front in, in this um, I don't want to use the word battler war because that, again mm -hmm. that's the language of the old but it, that's another front in this um, transition shall we say 
some scientists are coming forward and announcing is quite revelatory. For example, latest science have realized, has realized that um, organic matter, the organic matter that are the prerequisites for life as we know it, are produced within stars. Now, the old paradigm of science was saying that the, the universe, we live in a dead universe and that life on Earth is just an accident and that we just, um, life created spontaneously, accidentally, and we're just on a dead rock, a dead rock hurtling through space. Well, you know, for me, that's just laughable. I can't even in any way uh, relate to that. And so this latest science actually gives me comfort. So if the stars, and there's absolutely infinitesimal amount of stars in our known universe, if they are spewing out stellar radiation, organic molecules that are life-giving molecules, then really the universe is a, is a, a furnace for life. And so that, that already is shifting our paradigms of thought. And even um, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, he himself said that DNA is far too complex for, to have occurred on this planet spontaneously. And therefore, he wrote a, a book called Life Itself, and he put forward that he felt he related to the hypothesis of panspermia, which is the idea that DNA is actually um, seeded on planets or arrived on this planet from elsewhere, either on asteroids or passing comets that hit the Earth, or either intentionally as a way to seed other planets. So here we have the co-discoverer of DNA, as, as I think as early as the 1980s, he published a book around 84, 86, saying that he didn't feel that DNA evolved on this planet. So if we can if we can absorb and take on board this thinking, then within a, within the years ahead, we are really going to have a new scientific paradigm that's going to shift the worldview. And this transition that we're talking about, Greg, for me, I think the years ahead are going to be so monumental, both in terms of our consciousness shift, in terms of our new sciences in terms of our social transitions, it's going to be on a par with moving from a flat Earth to a round Earth. Yes, I believe so. Now, perhaps just to, to wrap up, um, we should say that you've pointed out that we are in a transition and we're heading towards a threshold, but we haven't yet reached a tipping point. But towards the end of your book, just to remind listeners, which is the struggle for your mind, um, you talk about future you know, where we're going, you talk about the dangers, but also the great flowering of possibilities that are there for us. I do, and that's why I felt it's important to show where we're going, not just to focus on, on where we've come from. And we've been talking about science now, and I've been talking about how I feel that we're going to be revitalizing the, the spiritual element in society as well. Now, again, we're conditioned to think of the term spirituality to be a kind of hippie word. Or, and so people may be reluctant to refer to it. Um, I'm quite relaxed about talking about spirituality, the inner self, and I feel that more and more people I speak with are also now coming back to feeling connected with talking about uh, the spirit. And, and in terms also of well-being, anything which is concerned, concerned with spirituality is really we're talking about well-being. And so I talk about a new vision of society and spirituality unfolding in the years ahead of where self-actualization, uh, notions of well-being and the inner self will become part of the new vocabulary of, of, um, of our daily lives. And that, I think, will be a turnaround as well. And also, I think that, in a sense, we've become slightly stigmatized by the, the, the concept of the new age. Because when the new age, you know, came rattling out with, um, you know, the, the, way, the, the way that they 
promoted this, perhaps with too much uh, ritual and garb and, and floweriness, it put people off. So we should talk about the new vocabulary to become the new normal, not the new age. And what I feel is important is that we should normalize what's happening now, not stigmatize it. So I think a spiritual spark, a spiritual instinct is rising strongly through people now. We can talk about it in terms of integrity, in terms of listening to ourselves and trying to be true to ourselves. The new sciences are validating that life is a living cosmos, teeming with life, and we want to, we want to connect with that. Um, and these are altering our perceptions of the self, and altering the perceptions of how we should connect with each other. And this, I feel, is also impacting people's lives. People are trying to look at how they can remodel their lives into be a more well-balanced, harmonious, coherent, energized life. I know many people who are leaving their old jobs, trying to find jobs that are more that resonate more with their new worldview. They're changing their living. Um, circumstances and trying to find a place which is perhaps more simplified or I'm not saying they're trying to be more simple but they're trying to get back to what is relevant in their lives and to try to throw off all these chains of excess they're kind of just you know coming in close and coming close to themselves and throwing off all the excesses that they don't need and this is part of I think of, of the movement to uh, what I refer to as ushering, ushering in the new life and so we're trying to assimilate, I feel, all these new feelings that are rising in us. How can we be, how can we be more truthful to ourselves? What kind of life we wish to live which is in resonance to well-being and the new sciences of connectedness and the new values of compassion, collaboration, communication, consciousness, and the new energies of positivity. Uh, these are all converging now and these, I feel, are the questions that we should uh, ask ourselves uh, in the days ahead. Well, Kingsley, your um, books are widely available, sort of all usual outlets, as we say, but perhaps you'd like to share with people uh, details of your, your website or anything else you'd like to put out there. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, I, I would like to say, you know, drop along to my website because I, I put out a lot of articles and essays and blogs quite frequently, and these are all free. You know, I try to put out as much information as I can that people can readily access. My website is uh, com, or just Google my name, Kingsley Dennis, because there's not many of us around. So that's the benefit of having an unusual name. Google me, come to my website. I also um, put out a monthly newsletter where I talk about these issues. And um, the books are one element of what I do. What I like to do is just to um, pass on information and be part of the growing, the growing conversation. Excellent. Well, Kingsley, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.